pray together. Father, our prayer is that you would give us hearts that would bless you from our souls and worship your holy name forever. So Lord, we pray for your help. We pray that you'd guide us now. We pray that you'd speak to us and that you'd teach us and train us and renew us. And we pray that you'd cause it to happen through the power of your spirit, by your word, in the name of Jesus, amen. Last fall, I was in Australia teaching at the Queensland Theological College in Brisbane, Australia, and I had a little bit of time when I wasn't in class to explore and, and to uh, look for souvenirs to bring back to my kids, and, and so the place they had me staying was, was near this sort of downtown shopping area, and between uh, where I was staying and where that shopping area was, there was this barber shop. And I usually cut my own hair, believe it or not. Um, but I'm in Australia. I've got time. You know, I'm not Jill and the kids are back here home. And I thought, maybe I'll just go get my hair cut. And so I keep walking by this barber shop, and there are people just lined up out the door. So, you know, that's a good sign at a barber shop. It, it indicates that the guy's doing a good job. And, and I'm, I walk by. It's one of these places where it's got like this, uh, almost like a garage door, you know, and they pull that garage door up, and then the, sh the storefront is kind of open. And I'm sort of looking in there, and the guy cutting hair, he looks like he, he's fashionable. You know, he's got one of these big, long beards. He's got stylish clothing on. He's got tattoos all up and down his arms. And so finally I decided, all right, I'm going to go get in line, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my hair cut by this guy. There's one, this one guy's cutting hair. There's another guy cutting hair. Nobody's waiting in line to get, get their hair cut by him. So I said, I'm, I'm getting in the line. And, um, and it was an evening, and, and the guy points at me because there are people up lining, lining up after me, and he says, that's the last one. You know? So I'm closing after I cut his hair so everybody else leaves. So finally, I get into the chair, and, um, and, and he starts cutting my hair, and uh, and I could tell that his English sounded foreign, not Australian, but it sounded foreign. And I said, where are you from? And he said, Iran. I said, really? I said, did you have trouble getting out of Iran? And he goes, I cause big problem in my country. <laughs> I'm thinking, who is cutting my hair, you know? <laughs> What's going on with this guy? And he says, uh, I said, really? I said, what, what was that like? And he says, I'm a Christian. I'm like, really? You're a Christian? And he said, yeah. And it, basically, they threw him out. He had to leave the country. You know, it was, it, 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 it was sort of forced upon him. Um, and so, I mean, I was so encouraged and, and, and just praising the Lord that here's this guy who became a believer in a very dark place in the world, a place I wouldn't expect a lot of people to become believers. And not only did he become a believer, but he, he's, he's learned this craft and he's doing good work and he's testifying. I didn't tell him I was a pastor until after he told me he was a Christian. So he's, he's testifying to the name of Jesus. And I thought of that, that incident this week when I read this article that was talking about the church in Iran. And, and it says, uh, this, this article that was on the Gospel Coalition website, it says that the church in Iran is a simple story that can be summarized in just two sentences. Persecution threatened to wipe out Iran's tiny church. Instead, 
The church in Iran has become the fastest growing in the world, and it is influencing the region for Christ. And then they, they go on to talk about, this, this author goes on to talk about how after the revolution in 1979, there was a lot of persecution, and, and they expected Christianity to be expunged from that land, and the, as, as it says, the opposite has happened. And what was interesting is after, so I go to class the next day, and I share this story with the students when I was over in Australia, and one of the guys who's a pastor in town says, oh yeah, he says Iranians, he says they're the most open people to the gospel in Australia. He says they'll, a lot of Iranians will come here as sort of displaced refugees, and he says they come to our churches, and it's like they knock on the door and they say, we want you to explain to us what's going on here. We just want to know what Christianity is. Will you, it's like they're coming saying, will you tell us the gospel? It's so encouraging to hear about. As we look at Psalm 145 this morning, we're going to see the way the Word of God produces a response of worship. The Word of God does the work for which the Lord sent it. It's like what Isaiah says in Isaiah 55:11, when the Lord declares there that his word will accomplish his purpose. It will succeed in the thing for which he sent it. So, so let's, let's turn our attention to Psalm 145. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to open to it. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take that copy with you. Let's look together at Psalm 145. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to here is the superscription of this psalm. It says, a song of praise of David. And Actually, what it, what it literally says is simply a praise of David, and they've added song to kind of help you interpret it, but this is the only psalm in the whole Psalter of all the 150 that is called a praise. It's not that there aren't other songs that are praises, but this is the only one with that in the title, a praise of David. And then I want to draw your attention to the last verse of, of the psalm, verse 21, where it says, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. It's the same word. And interestingly, the whole book of Psalms in Hebrew is called praises. It's the plural form of this word here, praise, tehillim, and this is the singular form. So this word praise brackets Psalm 145. And it's not just the word praise. Look at how verse 1 says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Look at the end of verse 21. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So praise and then bless name forever, this is, this is built into the structure of the psalm. And I'm drawing attention to this because sometimes people will say something like this. Somebody after the author of the psalm added the titles, the superscriptions of the psalms. And I think that this instance proves, no, whoever wrote this psalm added that title. And I think we can then push that to all the psalms. So, so I think these superscriptions, the headings at the top of the psalms, are original to the authors of the psalms. Interestingly, uh, this is the last one in the Psalter. This is the final after this. Psalms 146 through 150 do not have one of these superscriptions. So this psalm is a praise. And at the beginning of, the, and at the beginning of it and the end of it, David is saying that he's going to praise and bless the name of the Lord forever. 
Um, there's, there's another interesting um, fact about this psalm that doesn't really come, it doesn't come through at all in English, but this is another one of those psalms that works through the Hebrew alphabet. You know, it goes A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way to the end, so that each new line of the psalm starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But like some of the others, there's a letter that, that got skipped. So in this case, it's the letter N that got skipped. And if you're looking at an ESV, at the end of verse 13, there's a line that's in brackets. Uh, if, if you compare that with an NAS or an NIV, those words in brackets are not going to be there. The words in brackets, those are the N line that, that got, I think, got added later, and I don't think it was original, and I think that's why the ESV has it in brackets, but if you look at an NAS, it's not there at all. All right, that's all I'm going to say uh, along those lines. Uh, let's now start walking through this alphabetic psalm that, that praises the Lord. So look at the first thing David says in verse 1. He says, he says, I will extol you, my God and King. Let's start with this word extol. What he's saying is, I'm going to make you high. I'm going to extol you. <clears throat> and what's interesting to me about this is that when he says later in the verse, and bless your name forever, to, to bless in, in Hebrew has the connotation of bowing because the word for blessing has to do with, with bowing. And so it's like he's saying, Lord, I'm going to lift you up and I'm going to make myself low. And this is what happens. This is the way that people feel when they encounter God. When we encounter God, we instinctively understand he is high and lofty and I am lowly. Because what happens to us is we we, we have our smallness and our insignificance exposed to us, and we also have our sin exposed to us. I will extol you, my God, and bless, make myself low before you, bow down before you. He says, I will extol you, my God, and king. I think this is interesting because David himself is the king, isn't he? And this has, this has broader biblical significance because you'll remember that God put Adam in the garden to exercise dominion over God's created world. And David knows that he descends from Adam, and, and David knows that God has installed him as king and then promised him that his descendant is going to be king, and yet David knows who the true king is. I will extol you, my God and king, and bless your name forever and ever. So it's interesting here that you have a high and exalted person, David, who's king over all of Israel, and he's abasing himself before the living God because he knows who God is. Knowing God produces humility in us. Sometimes, we'll see this again later as we proceed through this psalm, sometimes as people, as people grow in significance, as they increase in authority, they become arrogant, they become detached, they become proud. What kept that David that from happening to David? Knowing God kept that from happening to David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. David is saying, through time, for as long into the future as his mind can think, and then on from there, he is going to commit himself to blessing the name of God. He's intentionally thinking about his future. Do you think about the future this way? 
when you think about what's going to happen, I, I would encourage you, just apply this psalm right here. When I think about the future, this is what I'm going to think in terms of. I'm going to be a person who blesses and praises God for as long into the future as I can think, and then on for, forever and ever, on from there. And then it's like he works it back, you know, he reverse engineers it. How am I going to get to there? Well, look at verse 2. Every day I will bless you. So all into the future and then every day from now, you could, one way to render this would be the whole of the day. The whole of the day. Every day, all day long, I'm going to be a person that blesses God. So let me invite you to just take stock here. When you get asked, how's it been for you lately? When you get asked, how are things going for you? And, and listen, there are always things that we could point to that we need prayer for, that we need help in, that we need comfort about. But let's be people who are thankful. Let's be people who bless the Lord. Let's be people who join David in this commitment. This is a, a commitment he's making to live this way. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. And then he tells us why he's committed to this in verse 3. He says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. What he's saying is, is that David, David is acknowledging the magnificence of the Lord, and he's, he's, he's saying there is no searching out the full extent and the duration of his greatness. Uh, the other night, we were watching the Cavs play the Celtics, and uh, maybe you watch the game, and LeBron James is hitting these impossibly long three-point shots, and my son is sitting there watching, my son who likes the Cavs, uh, that would be Jake, he's sitting there watching the game exclaiming, greatness, great, yeah, okay, but we can search out the end of LeBron's greatness, can't we? It might come tonight. <laughs> if it doesn't come tonight, it's probably going to come in the next week or so. And, and we can search out the duration of LeBron's greatness also. It might be five years. I mean, he's 32, 33. It might be seven years. But then we're going to reach the, the end of the duration of his physical uh, prowess. He's a human being. There is no searching out the extent and the duration of God's greatness. It will never come to an end. It will never be overcome. And then... We come to verse 4, and you'll notice if you're looking at, e at an ESV, there's sort of a gap between, they put some space between the end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4, and, and I think this is right. They also put some space at the end of verse 13 between the line throughout all generations and that, that line that's in brackets. Notice how the first statement in verse 4 is one generation, and then the last statement of verse 13 is throughout all generations. So this reference to generations brackets verses 4 through 13. So there's a, there's a, a theme that's going to run through verses 4 through 13, and it's, a, it's the theme of the way that the Word of God produces a response of, of worship. Look at verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another. When we think about the Bible, I think we should think in terms of 
what in the scriptures would prompt David to say something like this? And we should think in terms of earlier scripture being the background for statements like this. So some of you already know where I'm going. I'm thinking of Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses said to Israel in verse 6, These words that I command you today shall be upon your hearts, and you shall, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. I think that's what David has in mind when he says, One generation, the fathers, shall commend your works to another. How are they going to do that? Because they're going to teach the scriptures to their kids. That's how they're going to do it. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. What mighty acts would those be? Creation of the world, redemption at, at the exodus, the, the giving of the land at the conquest, all of these great things that happened from creation through redemption. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And then look at David's response to this in verse 5. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. So he's saying, this is what the fathers in Israel are going to do. And then his response is, I'm going to be a person who meditates on the glorious splendor of your majesty revealed in the scriptures. We become what we think about. We become what we think about. Let me draw your attention down to verse 12, where he says, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds. That's the same as mighty acts in verse 4. And then he says at the end of verse 12, and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. And we got glorious splendor there at the beginning. So a lot of similar terminology here as we work toward the center of this psalm, the corresponding parts of the psalm. David is saying, I am going to meditate on the accounts of what you have done. I'm going to think about you. And I'm going to think about your works. And we become what we think about. The, the kind of father who teaches the scriptures diligently to his children is the kind of father who has the scriptures on his own heart. Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. Deuteronomy 6.7, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And so, fathers in this room, you, many of you are doing such a great job at this. And I want to say, excel still more. Let's stay after this. Let's stay on it. We want to commit ourselves to meditating on the mighty acts of God. We want to be people who think about the glorious splendor of God's majesty. And if that's what's on our hearts, out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths will speak. David, in verse 6, he starts talking about how those works talk to him. And, and interestingly, um, in, in verse 5, um, uh, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but when it says, on your wondrous works, I will meditate, uh, it's actually the word words, literally there. On your wondrous words, I will meditate. And I think they render it works because they think that's what it's talking about. But it, it, you go look at it, 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 it's the word words there. And then I think those words, which is rendered here works, are what are talking in verse 6. They shall speak 
of the might of your awesome deeds. David is saying, the, I'm going to meditate on the Bible and the Bible's going to talk to me. The Bible, the wondrous works of God, shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And then here's his response to that. And I will declare your greatness. If we are people whose brains are saturated with the scriptures, we're going to be people who talk about God's greatness. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. And then in verse 7, it's like he's saying the Bible is going to come gushing out with God's goodness. Verse 7, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. So again, this, this pronoun they there, I think is pointing back to that word words or works at the end of verse 5. Those words are going to speak and, and prompt David to declare. And then those words, those works are going to pour forth and sing aloud. The Bible, David is saying, is gushing out God's goodness and shouting out his righteousness. They shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And the scriptures also reveal God's own account of his own glory. So I think what, I mean, it's clear. Verse 8, David is quoting Exodus 34, 6. You remember that passage. Moses was up on the mountain with God, and uh, the Lord had said to Moses, I'm not going with any further with the people of Israel because if I go with them, they're going to provoke me to wrath and I'm going to kill them. And, and, and Moses says, Lord, if you don't go with us, don't send us up from here, which I always, I, I'm always just struck by how remarkable this is. They're out at Mount Sinai. They're out in the wilderness and, and, the, and the, their destination is the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey, all this provision. And Moses is saying it would be better for us to be out here in the desert than in the land of promise, if we're with you. Because all that milk and honey flowing in that land is worthless to us if we don't have you. So if you don't go with us, don't send us up from here. And, and the Lord says, okay, Moses, I'll go with you. And, and then Moses says, please, show me your glory. Which is just stunning that this man, Moses, who's been on the mountain with God for 40 days, receiving the Ten Commandments, nobody's seen more of glory, more of God's glory than Moses. And what does he want? He's got this open door to make a request. And he says, God, I want more of you. Show me your glory. And the Lord says to him in Exodus 33, 19, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you, and I will proclaim my name before you. And then he, he does that in Exodus 34, and he says these words, Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And David, I think thinking about that passage, quotes that verse, slightly altered. He puts gracious instead of merciful first. He puts uh, he uses a word great instead of a word abounding, so it's just slightly different. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This is, this is God's explanation of who he is. And isn't it glorious that the first thing that God says about himself is that he's merciful and gracious, or gracious and merciful, that's the first thing out of the Lord's mouth when he defines himself to Moses. 
slow to anger. The Lord is patient. This is not a patience that is lax about righteousness. This is no lazy passivity, you know, that we sometimes witness in ourselves or in others. They ought to do the right thing and they're just, they don't have the backbone to stand up and do it. That's not what God's slowness to anger is. It's a wise and patient kindness that is not easily provoked. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He doesn't give what people deserve. He gives what people don't deserve. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that that reality of who God is, restated in verse 8, brings us to verse 9, where I think David is still thinking about, about Exodus 33 and 34. The Lord said, I'll cause all my goodness to pass before you. David says, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Matt sent me this quote this week from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, and, and um, in the, he sent me a picture of the page of the book, and um, he had underlined this this line that I'm about to read to you, and I went and found my copy of the book, and I had the same line underlined. It's a great line. J.I. Packer says, God is good to all in some ways and to some in all ways. God is good to all in some ways, right? His mercy is over all that he has made. God is good to all in some ways and to some in all ways, meaning some people don't just get the mercy that they get to live. Some people get the mercy of knowing God through Christ by the power of the Spirit. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, that's open to you. You can turn to Jesus. You can experience God's goodness to you in all ways if you will place your faith and hope in Christ. The Lord is good to all, David says in verse 9, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So verses 8 and 9 stand, I think, with verse 10 at the very center of this psalm. And in verse 10, David says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. John, in the book of Revelation, sees a, a, a sort of fulfilling enactment of this when he describes every creature in heaven and on earth praising the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. All creation will praise God. And then it's like David focuses in on the people who have experienced God's love at the end of verse 10, and he says, all your saints shall bless you. All your saints shall bless you. All the works that God has made, creation, uh, all the animals, everything is going to thank him, and the saints will join in blessing him. It's interesting how you get, you get blessing only three places in this psalm. Verse 1, bless your name forever and ever. And then verse 2, I will bless you. And then verse 10, bless you. And then at the end, verse 21, bless his holy name forever. So we, we've, we've sort of worked up to the center of the psalm. Now we're going to work out from the center of the psalm. And in verse 11... David starts focusing on God's kingdom. 
Look, verse 11 here, he says, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. Well, who's going to do this speaking? Well, I think it's the saints in verse 10 that are going to speak of the glory of the kingdom. And I think verse 10, all your works. So I think that they in verse 11 refers back to all that God has made and the people that God has redeemed. They're going to speak of the glory of God's kingdom. So uh, special or a general natural revelation, natural revelation is joining with special revelation, the scriptures, to explain human experience. And, and, and the world is, is full of ancient ruins, testimonies to great kingdoms. In, in, in my, just in the, in, in the last year or so, um, I've gotten to visit the Taj Mahal in India, uh, the Heidelberg Castle in Germany, and then uh, several years ago, five or so years ago, I got to go see the Imperial City in Beijing. All of these things are monuments to ancient kingdoms. All of these things are awesome architectural achievements that show us that in the distant past, way back there, there were kingdoms of wealth and efficiency and power and glory that ruled the land. And all that's left are the ruins and the monuments. None of them can claim the power and the wisdom and the glory revealed in the making of the whole world. And and all the people who lived under those kingdoms, they're dead. There there is no subject of the the kings who inhabited the Heidelberg Castle who lives to proclaim his Lord's greatness. But Yahweh's redeemed people continue to embrace his reign and rule from generation to generation. His subjects continue to attest his greatness, and the monuments to his kingdom are the whole world that we inhabit. The Lord's architectural achievements and redeemed people, verse 11 says, tell out the glory of God's kingdom and might. Look at verse 11. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. Why do, why do they do this? Look at verse 12. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds, to testify to all the sons of Adam everywhere that all people might know the mighty deeds of the Lord. Our, we got good news for people. God is a great king. His reign is going to last forever, and he is showing mercy to people who will come to him through Christ, people who will turn from their failing attempts to establish some other kingdom and to find joy in sin, people who who will embrace him as their Lord. To make known, verse 12, to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Kingdom in verse 11, kingdom in verse 12, kingdom twice more in verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion, that's an alternative of kingdom, endures throughout all generations. The Lord is going to reign forever. So we get this kingdom of glory that's going to last from generation to generation. And then in verses 14 through 20, this remarkable series of statements about the kind of God the Lord is. And and again, you know, I would just invite you to observe the way that so often people who, who are who are great, they're powerful, they're wealthy, they just stop caring for the weak and the lowly. 
They're not interested in people that can't help them. They, they have luxury, they have privilege, they have great responsibilities. And as a result, they become out of touch, unconcerned, sometimes callous. And that is not the way God is. And it is so stunning. Look at, look at verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling. This is affirming God's care for the frail, the vulnerable, the weak. He upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. It's like the Bible is saying, the God of the Bible doesn't need anybody to enrich him. The God of the Bible doesn't need the wealthy or the powerful to amplify his own resources or to increase his influence. His awesome stature, his limitless resources, and his acclaimed position don't make him de detached and unconcerned. Rather, the God of the Bible deploys the full might of his person as the Savior of those in need. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. And then David just continues in this vein, talking about the dependence of every living creature in verse 15. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. We cannot live apart from the Lord. We cannot be fed apart from his goodness. The, the, this verse is saying that, that all eyes look to him and he does not fail. And then verse 16 teaches that the Lord's goodness satisfies our desires. Verse 16, you open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. I think there are two, two sort of aspects of this satisfaction. Because on the one hand, verse 15, all, the eyes of all are looking to the Lord for their need. And, and he's giving them, food, giving them their food in season. And I think the idea is he's giving them their food by opening his hand and extending it to them. But then look at the rest of that statement in verse 16. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. So I think that there's, there's two aspects of this. On the one hand, God built us to have the desires that we have. God built us to feel hunger, to yearn, to be loved by other people. God built us to have these longings, and then God satisfies those longings. He meets our physical needs. He, he brings people in our, into our lives who, who bless us with uh, em, em, emotional closeness and, and love and so forth. But then there's also this reality that ultimately those things are not going to finally satisfy us. Ultimately, we were built to be satisfied by the Lord alone. And he gives himself to us. Look at the end of that verse there, verse 16. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. God himself is the satisfier of desire. So the contemplation of the way that God satisfies desire seems to prompt David to celebrate him again in verses 17 through 19. So look at what he says in verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. 
David is saying, everything God does is right. Everything God does is right. Sometimes in our experience, we can see what the right thing to do would be, and it feels like it would be cruel to do it. It feels like it would be harsh. It feels like it would be mean. It feels like it would be unfeeling, uncaring, insensitive, so forth. And David is saying, that's not the way it is with God. Look at this verse. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The word kind there is built off the word chesed. So you could say he's loving in all his works. He's righteous and he's loving always, all the time, in everything that he does. I don't know of a better testimony to this than, than what our brother Johnson has been giving us. And, and if you're not receiving his email updates, you're you're missing a blessing. And if you're not receiving these email updates, you should contact one of us who are, send an email to me, I'll forward them to you. They are such a testimony of faith. They're, they're, they're in the hospital with this little child, and, and last night, um, I mean, over and over again, Johnson is affirming as he, as he responds to his, his child suffering and his wife uh, having had this baby that's in such difficulty, and all over the place, he's saying, God is good. God is good, and we're going to trust him. And, and listen to what he, what he wrote last night. Maybe you, you read this. There's this subtitle that says, Next Time You Breathe. And he writes, When I watch my kids run, play, eat, and take breaths without complication, because little Timmy has these malformed lungs that won't function for him. He says, It makes me so grateful Seeing how hard it is for Timmy just to live, eat, and breathe puts things in perspective. If our kids are nagging or are yelling at one another, which, you know, Hamilton kids never do that, so I don't know what he's talking about here. That's a joke. (laughs) Sorry, guys. He says, if our kids are nagging or are yelling at one another, it makes me grateful that they can even do that. It's also humbling to think of how easy it is to take these simple things for granted. These are gifts from the Lord. Why are my lungs fine and my organs in their right place? Was it something I did? What makes me any different? Nothing at all. It's all the Lord's mercy. It is something I receive from the Lord. We can't take our health for granted. We must acknowledge our maker and seek to use our health to honor him. That's what David is doing here. David is not claiming to have an explanation for why it is that some children suffer. He's not claiming to have an answer for all of these questions, but he is affirming the Lord is righteous in everything he does, and he's loving in the way he does it. And then he goes on to affirm something that is just as good in verse 18. He says, the Lord is near to all who call on him. And obviously, they're calling out on the Lord out of this place of need, aren't they? And he's saying, when people who trust the Lord call on him, and then he adds, to all who call on him in truth. So I think he's saying, when they call on him in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with what the Bible teaches about God, the Lord is near to them. Again, Johnson has testified to this over and over as they've suffered The nearness of God, Psalm 73 says, is my good. Those who sincerely seek the Lord 
will find him close to them in their need. And, and we, don't, we don't know everything the Lord needs, the Lord knows. And, and sometimes we may find that in our lives, we're, we're playing the part of the foolish child who wants something that the wise parent knows is not good for us. But the parent is going to be near to the child. He's near to us in our need. Even in our, our frustration, he's going to be with us when we call upon him. So if the Lord gives us, I mean, look at these verses. Verse, verse 16, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Verse 17, he's righteous in all his ways. Verse 18, he's near to all who call on him. We may have desires that are not satisfied. And these verses are saying, God is right in what he's doing, and he'll be near to, to you if you call upon him in truth. We can trust him that he's not just right, he's also loving, he's kind in all his works, the end of verse 17. Verse 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. I think that, that, that phrase, those who fear him, is the controlling idea, idea here because the fear of the Lord is going to make these people who fear him, ultimately their desire is for his kingdom. Ultimately their desire is for his reign and rule. That's going to be fulfilled. Ultimately, their desire is going to be for more of God. He's going to give himself to them. So there may be lots of things that we desire that, that we never have fulfillment for. We can live with that if we've got the Lord. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. So there's, there's an attentive God who is hearing the cry of the lowly. Verse 14, he upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. That doesn't mean that you're going to get everything you want in the time that you want it. It does mean that you're going to have God. And at the end of all things, you're going to have salvation. And you can enter into his kingdom and rejoice with him. Because look at verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. And then David closes again with that commitment to praise. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever. So out of the Lord's praiseworthy character, verses 8 and 9 and verse 10, out of the Lord's praiseworthy character comes a response of, of praise that, that is in verse 10. And that is supported by verses 4 through 7 and 11 through 13, where, where the scriptures and the saints are declaring God's glorious, splendid majesty. And then you have these, these parts about how you have an exalted one and a lowly one. Verses 2 and 3, I'm going to bless you. Verse 3, great is the Lord. Verses 14 through 20, the Lord is uphold, the high and lofty one is upholding those who are falling and raising up those who are bowed down. And then that outer frame, the commitment to praise and worship and bless the Lord. He is worthy of praise. And so we should bless him forever. This is all going to be enacted one day. I want to, I want to read to you two testimonies out of Iran that this article on the Gospel Coalition site um, relates. This, this author writes, Kamran was a violent man who used to sell drugs and weapons. One day, a friend gave him a New Testament. 
After reading for five consecutive days, Kamran gave his life to Jesus. When his family and friends saw his transformed life over the ensuing months, many of them also came to faith. A church now meets in Kamran's house. Reza was a mullah, a Muslim scholar, who hoped to become an ayatollah, a Shiite leader. One day while studying at an Islamic seminary in Iran, he found a New Testament that had been boldly left in the library. Out of curiosity, he picked it up and was deeply shaken. Over time, he fell in love with Jesus. Today, Reza is a trained church planter serving in the Iran region. The Word of God accomplishes the work of God. This is why we preach the Bible here at Kenwood. The Word of God provokes worship. Let's be people who resonate with what David says here. Let's be people who commit ourselves to praise and bless Him forever, who call on Him in truth in our time of need, who know Him as the satisfier of all our longings, as the one who upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Father, we need you. You know we need you. We need your word. We need your presence. We need your ongoing mercy. And Lord, we so often need each other to reassure us that you are right in all your ways and kind in all your deeds. So Lord, we pray that you would Cause us to know these things for ourselves. Lord, we ask that you would cause your word, the seed of your word, to be implanted in us. Cause us to receive it and cause it to bear fruit, we ask. Make us fruitful. Cause the nations to hear from our lips that you are a king who is worthy of praise and that your son Jesus the Lamb who was slain is the Savior of all who take refuge in Him. Lord, we commit ourselves to You. We pray that You would grant us evangelistic fruit. We pray that You would grant us perseverance in the faith. And we pray that You would cause the Word to dwell in us richly. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.